there is interest all over the place. We we find most towns and cities have there's some interest there in having a, a community energy enterprise but it's really challenging getting a project like this off the ground mm. communities for renewables has worked with 30 community energy enterprises over the last uh, five years 10 of those have got through to uh, developing projects raising money and they've now got solar up and running uh, ranging from solar panels on a number of community buildings in an area up to large solar farms like, like the Gorkut Fields project. 20 of those didn't get that far for a number of reasons. And normally it wasn't community support. Normally they, they could all uh, get a lot of interest from, from their local community. The, yeah. the challenges they hit were finding appropriate sites, uh, the local electricity network being full up and not able to take any more generation, subsidy cuts... Uh, planning barriers, that kind of thing. So, so that there's not a lack of interest, but it is, it's not easy getting one of these projects off the ground. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and today we're talking about community power generation. Towards the end of the summer of 2016. I was bracing myself for another season of watching children's football, like thousands of other parents, who every year from September through to June stand and shiver in the wind and the rain, that as sure as night follows day begins to fall as soon as we take our positions at the side of the pitch. Not that we notice so much once play begins. I've never been a football fan, but watching nine-year-olds play is much more compelling than any Premier League team. The unadulterated joy when a goal is scored, the bravery in the face of tough opposition and resilience when play doesn't go their way, not to mention the goal celebrations, are just some of the reasons that I don't mind standing in the rain with frozen toes. As that first match of the season got underway in September 2016, I noticed that something was different about the view. The football pitches are found at the edge of a small village in Buckinghamshire called Gorkot, and surrounding the sports ground are more fields and of course the roads by which you access the club. But standing on the sidelines, watching my son take on a defender, I looked behind him, and instead of the usual sprawl of more fields behind the hedgerow, there were solar panels. Thousands of them. Where did they come from? Once I noticed them, I couldn't stop noticing them. Signs for Gorkop Fields Community Solar sprang up along the roadside. Community Solar? What was that? I needed to know. So I went to the website and I contacted the community interest company that had been set up to manage and deliver the project. From here, I met Jake Burnett, a director of Gorkop Field Solar Community Interest Company and managing director of the not-for-profit organisation Communities for Renewables, which helps towns and villagers set up their own community energy enterprises. And I met him on site at the solar farm. So we stood here in a field between Gorkot and Buckingham. Uh, next to a 4.18 megawatt community solar farm that's been up and running since June 2016. This date of June 2016 turned out to be absolutely critical, but we'll learn more about that later. The project was initiated by the landowner who wanted to develop a solar farm on on their land. Um, They've got quite a small land holding and it was no longer viable as a commercial farm. And they started developing the solar farm and for various reasons, as it evolved, they decided to split the solar farm in two. So now half the solar farm is what we would call a commercial project, but 
in this case it's owned by the, the farmer and their family and the other side has been set up as a, as a community scheme. The landowner is Brian Harper, without whom the scheme would not have happened. His ingenuity and open-mindedness were the foundations for the project, which has created something positive for the local community, and yet its origins lay in tragedy. I spoke with his son Matt about why the family moved from farming crops to farming sunshine. The the, the last uh, sort of uh, five or six years has uh, been uh, an unfortunate time for my father. Uh, he's lost his uh, uh, youngest brother, uh, then his wife, my mother, um, and uh, then his older brother. And so the whole sort of uh, business uh, uh, has changed dramatically uh, from uh, near about a thousand acres spread over three farms, uh, one at Akeley and one at Toaster and one here at Gorkut. And so my father's ended up with basically 70 acres, which uh, isn't uh, sizable to, to run a sort of farming operation uh, to own all the equipment. It's, uh, it's an expensive, uh, asset-rich business, and um, we had to think outside the box a bit, actually. Um, so uh, the idea of the solar farm uh, came from uh, a number of people r- ringing Dad, um, almost cold calling, knocking on his door, and uh, he, he said, well is it such a bad idea you know why, why shouldn't we consider this and uh, that's how the uh, the solar farm came to be um the advantages uh, as far as dad was concerned was um yes there was a high investment but uh, once uh, established then the uh the, the maintenance ongoing was very low uh, my father is 82 now um and uh he is still up and about on his feet which i'm glad to say and um, but uh yeah he doesn't need to be farming the 70 acres of land day in day out uh, as long as day follows night uh, and the sun shines which it has done brilliantly this year then the solar panels kind of do what they they say on the tin and, and they produce electricity which is great. It has been a good year so good that the solar farm has outperformed expectations. Yeah we've had a bumpy year so irradiance over the, the last 12 months has been four percent higher than what we would expect an average year to be. This is Tom Cosgrove the development manager for Communities for Renewables and a renewable energy expert. He explains that performance is monitored using pyranometers, which sit on the end of the solar arrays and measure the irradiance in real time, sending information via satellite to the Community for Renewables officers 270 miles away in Cornwall. You can tell how well your system's performing versus the sunlight that there is, and when we analyse that, you get what's called a performance ratio. So when you design the plant, you'll have a design performance ratio, or PR, that you're trying to achieve. Typically, modern plant, you'll be looking for kind of mid to high 80s in performance okay. ratio. Um, we've actually just done the analysis for the last year of performance for this plant, and it was 86.6, I think, the performance ratio over the year, which was ahead of our projection for that year. Interestingly, hotter weather isn't necessarily the optimum condition for photovoltaic generation, which occurs when photons from sunlight displace electrons in the silicon solar panels, creating a flow of current that can be captured by the cables attached to the solar panels. What PV likes is cold sunshine. So when when it gets hot, that increases the internal resistance in the system and it increases losses. So the ideal scenario is when there's a lot of irradiance, a lot of sunshine, but it doesn't actually get that hot. The winter sun. Yeah, yeah, the winter sun is perfect, yeah. But typically what you find in in the UK in particular is that you oversize the DC capacity of a plant in terms of the number of panels and the watt peak output versus your AC output or your inverter sizing. 
So on this plant, we've got 4.2 megawatts of panels, but we've only got 3.6 megawatts of inverters. The inverters convert the direct current generated by the movement of electrons into alternating current required by the local network. And what that means is in the summer months, so a really sunny day when the plant's at maximum output, the inverters are actually clipping what the panels can, can produce. So even though it's a, a hot sunny day, you'll probably still be producing peak power because you, you have got internal resistance that's increased, you've increased your losses, but your panel, panels are capable of producing quite a lot more than they are actually Why producing. Why is there that mismatch between? Because in the winter months, so for the majority of the year, at, yeah, the, the vast majority of, of a UK average year, you're, you, you won't be producing your maximum peak power so on the days when it's not quite so sunny your panels are producing more than they would be if you'd sized them exactly the same as the inverters so the optimum ratio depends where you are and how you design your system is about 1.2 1.25 to 1 right. so that yeah that tends to be how th things are designed here if you're in a sunnier location where you're more likely to be hitting your peak output more often more frequently you would reduce that ratio although a contractor carries out day-to-day -day maintenance Part of Tom's job is annual inspections of the farm, which includes drone-based thermal imaging. So what I'm doing today is just a walk around to check all of the connections, see whether anything is visibly eroding, um, see whether there are any issues with the ground conditions. So um, I identified one inverter over there where it looks like something's been trying to burrow where the cables are. So that's what, something that you would look to cover over. Um, checking how the vegetation is doing so you can see we've recently had the grass cut underneath the panels but there are some areas where the weeds haven't been cut and if you don't keep an eye on it then potentially you get the weeds coming up through the panels and creating shading seeing uh, any build up of dirt whether our cleaning regime is is working and and kind of how yeah how soiled the panels are whether we should be changing when we when we soil them or when we clean them sorry um yeah, just that kind of thing. Just looking for anything visibly that, that doesn't look right, whether all the connections are kind of up underneath the panels out of the way of the weather. and um, Yeah, so you, you kind of, as you can see, we've got the inverters tucked away underneath the panels and yeah. you're trying to keep those out of the rain and out of the weather. And, and if you've got kind of connections that might be hanging down loose, um, there are connect connectors in between each panel called MC4s and if you've got those hanging down sometimes you can get rain that runs down the the um the wire and it will kind of all gather at the bottom in the connector and that can be something which causes them to go wrong so you can see here that they're all tied up yeah they're nicely, all tucked quite neatly yeah, aren't they? out the way which is what we're looking for really yeah. just making sure that everything looks looks nice and neat and tidy and there's no visible erosion as tom explained Gorkop Field Community Solar has been outperforming expectations, which is good news for the multitude of investors and lenders who finance the scheme. And this includes the local community. Yeah, so the, the, every unit of electricity that's, that's generated by the, by the solar farm, uh, there's two sources of income. One is the feed-in tariff subsidy, uh, and the other is a power purchase agreement yeah. rate. Um, uh, and we just actually retendered the, the power purchase agreement to, to another company called Opus Energy. Uh, and that revenue that the solar farm generates, uh, which is something over 400,000 a year, that revenue is used to cover the operating costs of the solar farm, service and maintenance, building up reserve funds to replace components in the future, the running costs of the community company, and then to pay our, our, our various funders. 
So we have now paid Fouts back, and we paid them back through raising a long-term bank loan from Santander Bank for just over three million pounds, a community bond offer which raised four hundred eighteen thousand pounds, and then to fill the gap in the middle, uh, we've got a, a a bridge loan from a specialist social investment fund called Social and Sustainable Capital. Okay. Uh, so they all need their interest and capital paid back over time. And then all the surplus income left after that is used to support the community purpose of Gorkot Fields Solar. Uh, and at the moment, we're supporting two things. We're supporting a community grant fund and an energy and fuel poverty advice service to help people uh, within the Gorkot and Buckingham area who are struggling to pay their energy bills. Faltz, or Faltz Solar, is the German contractor that built the 4.2 megawatt community farm. Interestingly, the contractor not only successfully delivered the 16,000 solar panels to meet this critical June 2016 deadline, it financed the construction too, meaning that it assumed the construction risk. For any infrastructure or construction project, financing this initial phase is always the most expensive element, with banks reflecting the construction risk in the interest rates. The fact that Falz Solar financed this phase enabled the community investment company to then refinance this at a lower interest rate once the project was operational. But this lower interest rate wasn't the most important aspect. The interest rate they charged on the construction loan was very reasonable, but the, the key thing for us was if the project hadn't been built by the end of June 2016, it wouldn't have secured its feed-in tariff and it wouldn't have been viable. And they were willing to take the risk that in the three-month period or so they had to build the project, they would definitely commission it in time. Um, Had we not had that support, we probably wouldn't have had time to go and raise finance from another source to then fund a construction contractor to to build the solar farm. The value of the feeding tariffs, which have been vital in the growth of renewable energy in the UK, have been steadily declining, and the whole system is set to close in April 2019, eliminating a key revenue stream that has made projects like this viable. This solar farm benefits from a, a feed-in tariff of, of over six pence per kilowatt. Uh, if we hadn't commissioned it by the end of June 2016, that feed-in tariff would have dropped to a level where the, where the project would have no longer been viable. Another factor that made the project viable was the proximity of the connection into the local electricity network owned by Western Power Distribution. Uh, we, we, um, we were fortunate. Um, we, uh, we've got a connection to the grid uh, along one of our hedges. Uh, to transport electricity, it's really expensive. Right. So I would say if you haven't got a, a connection uh, to the grid, it's a bit like a, a power plug, you know, if you've got to run an extension lead, yeah. uh, run an extension lead for power of this sort of uh, volume is, is, is very, very expensive. Right. And so if you've got to travel a mile to connect, you're probably going to have to forget it. Um, but um, that's, don't take my word for it, just all I'd say is uh, do a bit of investigation have a look into it, um, see whether it's something that you you, you think you want to do, uh, understand whether you want to make the investment on your land or whether you want to rent it uh, and maybe do what we did and have a community uh, solar site. I asked Western Power Distribution exactly how expensive and they said they couldn't tell me because there's so many variables involved in calculating the connection fee. Factors that are taken into account, they said, include the capacity of the network and the local geography. Passing beneath a railway or major road, for example, will add many thousands to the cost. In some cases, it's a deal breaker. Combine an expensive connection and the lack of feeding tariff, it's not surprising that the viability of community power projects is currently under threat. But why does this matter if the lights stay on? 
Well, the reality is that projects such as this have been a great benefit to the UK in recent years, with the rise in local generation and distribution credited to increasing the UK's reserve power margin. At the same time, renewable energy accounted for just over 30% of power generation in the first quarter of 2018, up from 6.9% in 2010. This growth is inversely proportionate to that of coal-fired generation, which is being steadily phased out by the government. On the bright side, the cost of installation of new solar has fallen dramatically. Installation costs have come down significantly over the last two years, and we're getting very close now to the position where installation costs are low enough that a solar farm will be financially viable without any subsidy at all. Although the power purchase agreement and the price that this electricity is sold for might be enough to cover the cost and operation of this kind of scheme, proving the long-term certainty of this to investors in order to raise the capital needed for construction is a major challenge. Remember that the feed-in tariff was a government-backed long-term revenue stream. Without this, or any other form of security, lenders will be reluctant to commit. So there's thousands of megawatts of solar that have been built in the UK since 2015. The ground mount solar took off in a way that no one really expected it to. And I think the UK didn't really understand the economics of it and didn't understand there was an industry ready, ready to come in and, and, and do this. And the frustrating thing for, for us at Community for Renewables is that only a tiny fraction of those projects are community owned. Um, the vast majority of, of solar projects go through a life cycle of being developed by uh, a, a developer at the outset that might go and get all the necessary consents and land agreements in place. They'll then sell the solar farm to a construction company that will build it. That construction company will then sell it on perhaps to a, a tax fund that will hold it for three years and then they'll sell them on to an infrastructure fund or, or a pension fund. And each time the project's sold, some profit is taken out of it and the residual asset has a lower return. So you might start with a, a project that has a 10% return and you end up with a project that's got a 5% return and various parties have made a profit on the way. That's not a bad thing that solar's got built. It's not a bad thing that our pension funds have solar as an underlying investment. But if 5% is the return required to build solar, if we'd gone straight to that end game, we could have built twice as much solar with the same amount of, of, of public subsidy. The other frustrating thing is it, 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 we've got lots of interest from community projects, from communities around the country coming forward to build their own projects, but they've, they've been too late to the game. There's no space left in their grid or no suitable, no suitable sites left. So uh, there's been lots of interest and, and, and frustration from communities that couldn't do their own. The difference with a community project is the project is owned by a not-for-profit company, either a community interest company or a community benefit society. That company has a, a community purpose, which is normally a locality-based purpose, so generating income and energy for its locality. It's governed by a board of local directors who, who oversee the company and steer how the, how the community income is used. And if the solar farm makes more money, rather than more money going to commercial investors, more money goes towards that, that community purpose. And just by nature of the, of the ownership of the project sitting in a local not-for-profit company, the outcome is, is fundamentally different. Today, community-owned energy projects account for 249 megawatts of installed capacity, which is only a tiny proportion of the total, enough for around 100,000 homes. Community Energy England is calling for government to do more to support the sector as the feed-in tariff system closes, such as including establishing national targets and localised funding mechanisms. In the absence of any policy support, community energy action groups are investigating alternative investment approaches such as crowdfunding. 
The 9.3 megawatt Burnham and Western Energy Project in Somerset has just raised an incredible £4 million using this method, and that's being used to refinance the construction loan. The scheme's expected to raise £1.2 million for the local community over its 25-year operational life. At Gorkop Fields Community Solar, the profit won't quite be this high, but the area is benefiting in two key ways. Local people invested in the 419,000 community bond, which is providing a return of 6%, and profits from the scheme are being spent on local projects, including a fuel poverty advisory service and grants to the local sports clubs. The, the real up, upside for me um, is the fact that we're um, now generating amounts that can be given back to the community. Um, and uh, this year, um, we're just uh, finalising who gets what. Um, there's a pot of £15,000 um, and that's going to be split um, uh, uh, to well, organise sports clubs really and, and ideally uh, for kids um, and it's a five mile radius, five mile radius from this solar site. One of the successful applicants is the football club where my son plays. It seems that the odd stray football into the solar farm has not deterred the board from making an award to this very local children's football organisation. Whether this is spent on new kits, ground improvements or hopefully some rain shelters, the success of the local solar farm is going to give a much needed boost to the football club. But in future, without any kind of government intervention, community projects like this will struggle to move forward and profits from energy generation will remain with institutional investors and energy companies. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by me, Bernadette Ballantyne. Special thanks to Gorkop Fields Community Solar, Communities for Renewables and the Harper family. Mixing and editing by John Young. Additional story development by Rhea Owen. Theme tune by JM Sounds. Additional music by Pond5. Executive power producer is Rory Harris and we'll be back in three weeks with more. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app. This really helps others to hear about us or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Podcast Addict, Blueberry, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters, or find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Find out more about us online at reby.media.